We've been going through the book of Joshua, uh, and we took a break last week, uh, and Bob was able to come and share with us, and he did a great job sharing about um, how we truly love God with all our hearts, and uh, we are going to continue in Joshua this morning. Um, I know it is Mother's Day, uh, and uh, there's a few things that I will draw out even as we think about Mother's Day today, Uh, but ultimately we're going to continue on through Joshua so we can continue to make progress as we see what God is teaching us through this book and teaching us through the person of Joshua and and teaching us through historical events that really happened, and yet we can take what God has done in the past and we can see that he is still indeed a God who is at work, a God who is still a great God, who is still powerful and who is king Overall, And we're going to continue to see that as we are in the book of Joshua. We will be in chapter 10 this morning. Uh, as I uh, thought about this morning, uh, we're going to talk today a lot about God's faithfulness, uh, and especially that he is faithful to his promises. And I remember, uh, speaking of Mother's Day, that one of the things... And our moms all teach us so many things uh, through our through watching them, through listening to them, sometimes through them pushing us, uh, and sometimes pulling us, even if they must. Uh, but uh, I remember one thing that my mom always taught us as kids, uh, and it's something that uh, I pray and hope still remains in me, and hopefully it can be passed on to my kids, uh, is the value of commitment, the value of when you say you're going to do something, when you put your word to something, when you commit to something, whatever that might be, that you don't back away, that you don't walk away from that. That is not what we should do, that we should keep our promises. And I remember uh, many times that meant I had to keep promises that I didn't necessarily even always want to keep. And yet I did because it was instilled in me that indeed keeping promises and honesty is something that not only does my mom value, but God himself would value. Now, it's interesting today is we're going to look at this next part of Joshua, that Joshua and the Israelites are given an opportunity uh, to make good on a commitment that they made. Uh, And uh, even though probably many of them didn't want to follow through with the commitment, they do. And we're going to see that in a moment. But even more than what Israel does, we notice that God honors his commitments and God honors his promises. So much more than we even do. And even though I may have been taught that growing up and, and that was instilled in me, that doesn't mean I've perfectly kept all of my promises or all of my commitments as I've gone through life. Certainly there are times in which I overcommitted or times in which I may have made a commitment uh, that I did end up walking away from. And I can't think of a whole lot of specific times, but I'm sure it's happened because I'm not perfect. And I'm sure you would have the same thing happen in your lives. But God is not us. God is so much greater than us. He is our creator and he is ultimately the ultimate promise keeper. He is the one that will keep his promises. He is the faithful one. And as we look at God as the faithful one, it should inspire us to be faithful to our promises and it should also give us great hope and it should give us great confidence and it should give us great uh, encouragement to know that God is a God who keeps promises and God is a God who indeed is faithful Even when we might be faithless, he is faithful to us. And with that as kind of our backdrop, we're going to go ahead and continue in Joshua chapter 10. I'm going to give you a little bit of a a background for those of you who haven't been with us, or uh, even if you've forgotten over the last couple weeks where we've been. We won't spend a whole lot of time here. Uh, All the information you kind of need to know is on your outline. But in a nutshell, what we've seen so far is that through the book of Joshua, uh, God is calling Joshua and the Israelite people to take the land of Canaan, which was their promised land. 
the promise that God gave to Israel, he said, it's time for you to take that promise, to take the gift that I've given and go into the land and take it. And Joshua has been called to do this and he's been told several times, as has Israel, excuse me, that they need to have courage. And not courage in the sense of the world's definition of courage, but courage in which means total trust in the faithful God who is giving them the land. Not that they're going to have courage by going in and being strong in and of themselves, but they'll have courage by trusting in the strength of God himself. Uh, God has declared now that his presence is with Israel, and that as he is with Israel, his purpose of what he does through Israel and around Israel, and even, even at times against Israel, is all about showing his glory to the world. It's about his glory being seen and his promises being uh, made good. And so that's been kind of the, the theme as we continue to see that. A couple things have happened in as far as historical things. Uh, victory is had over the city of Jericho. God shows that he is the faithful one, the promised, the promiser, that he tells them to walk around the city. And, and he, they do that for a week. On the seventh day, they walk around seven days. The walls fall. God gives complete victory over Jericho. After that, we saw that there was a little bit of a bump in the road for Israel. Actually, a lot more than that. They have a defeat at the hands of Ai, a a land that they should have been able to beat easily, a land that they should have been able to go and take, and yet, for some reason, they weren't able to, and they find out that that reason is sin, and that sin crept into the camp of Israelites and and Achan and his family, and that Achan needs to be punished. It comes to light. Achan and his family are punished for the sin in which they have gone against God, the one who has given them the promise, the truthful one, uh, the one who is faithful. Achan was faithless in the way how he obeyed or disobeyed, in this sense, God's laws and God's desires. And so therefore, he needed to be punished. And we see that God must punish sin, which we're going to see again. That God is a God who, if he's truly a good, faithful God who is true to his promises, then that also means that he must judge sin, because that's also a promise. He, has a, he gives a promise of mercy and protection to Israel, but he also gives a promise of cursing and a promise of judgment upon those who don't follow him. And to be a good God, he has to hate what is evil. And so we've seen that, that time and time again, even against other nations and even in Israel itself. We see that after the sin was dealt with, uh, God gives Israel a battle plan and they're able to defeat Ai. And, and that ended up, God gives great mercy as he forgives them for their sin. And then last time we were together, if you remember, we looked at a nation called Gibeon. Gibeon was a nation that was uh, a pretty strong nation, actually, and they would have been next in line to be, con- to be conquered by Joshua and Israel. That would, they would be the next cities that would be taken, and they come to Israel, and they lie to them, and they say, we're from a way far away, we've traveled all this distance, we want to serve you, and we want to serve your God. Israel falls for the ruse, they don't ask God's opinion, and they just move forward with Gibeon, they make a covenant, a promise to Gibeon. And the people of Gibeon then, they're they're found out, and Israel still remains merciful. They still show God's mercy to Gibeon, even though Gibeon says, hey, you know what, Uh, you can do with us whatever you want to do because we lied to you. Joshua and Israel says, we've made a covenant with you in the sight of God. A covenant with you in the name of our God, and therefore we will not break that covenant, but we will be faithful to our covenant, and we will show you mercy. And that's exactly what Israel did. Now, understanding what happened with Gibeon is going to be key to understanding now chapter 10. Uh, Because in chapter 10, we see where this plays out. 
where this covenant that was made, this agreement, this alliance that was made with Gibeon would become a problem for Israel, but yet well, you will see their faithfulness, their, uh, their commitment to keep a promise, just as God also will show his same commitment. And so the main idea this morning as we look at chapter 10 of Joshua is that God is a faithful defender. That God is a faithful defender. He is faithful. And that he will defend. And we're going to see today that he's going to defend his promises. He's going to defend his people. And he's going to defend his glory. And so as we think about those things, as we look at what's happening here in chapter 10, let us take a minute and we're going to read chapter 10. We're going to look through the first 28 verses of chapter 10 and then we'll go back and make some observations. So if you'll read along with me as we go to Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. As soon as Abnai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction doing to Ai and its king what he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to uh, Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon to make war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country... Uh, are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal and he met the people of war, or he had all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them all the way to the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as uh, Azekah and Makedah. And they fled before Israel while they were still going to the ascent of Beth Haran. And the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than from the sons of Israel who killed with the sword. And at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, and the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar, that the sun stopped in the midst of heaven, did not hurry to set for about a whole day? There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Then... These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Mechadah, and it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Mechadah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men to, it, to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves, pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard, do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, 
and the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Mecca. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, the king of Eglon. And they brought those kings out to Joshua. Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees till evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Mechadah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted destruction to every person in it. He left nothing remaining, and he did to the king of Mechadah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. All right, lots happening here, uh, and we're going to look at chapter 10. We're going to see what is God doing, what is happening here. Uh, we know that Joshua and the Israelites are, are characters in this story, but we know that God is the ultimate one who is working and we're going to see that God indeed is a faithful defender. First thing we're going to see in the first nine verses is that God defends his promises. God defends his promises. Uh, we see in verses one through nine what basically happens is uh, five nations uh, unite together. They become allies and they decide to go and attack. But see, they don't choose to attack Israel directly. And I think there's probably lots of reasons for this. One of them might be because they're afraid of Israel. Uh, another one uh, might be because they were closer and they were able to get to them before they would get to Israel. And in whatever case, uh, a five-king coalition attacks Gibeon. They come against Gibeon, this nation uh, that Israel had just made a covenant with, that they would be their servants. And now uh, they hear of this, uh, the king of Jerusalem, and then he gets other guys together and says, we're going to go against Gibeon. They're going to attack Gibeon, which is now a nation that is, uh, that is allied with Israel. And so we see Joshua make a very quick decision, because Gibeon is being attacked. They're, out, they're outnumbered, no question about it. They're, being, they're going to be destroyed without help. And so the people of Gideon come, Gibeon come running to Joshua and they say, Joshua, we need help. Honor your covenant is actually what it says. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up and quickly and save us. They're saying, please honor your commitment, honor your covenant. And what do we see Joshua do? He immediately takes his army. He immediately takes his army and goes to defend Gibeon. So Joshua runs to Gibeon's defense. This nation that they're at one point supposed to destroy now has become their ally and through this covenant. And Joshua now, you know, he could have sat back and said, you know what, hey, we're not, we're not breaking our covenant. They can be destroyed and then we don't have to worry about this. But no, he honors his commitment to the people of Gibeon as God has honored his commitment to the people of Israel. And Joshua takes his army and goes and defends Gibeon. But here's the interesting thing I see in verses 1 through 9, uh, is this is not all about Joshua either. In in verse 8, we read that God comes to Joshua, and it says, The Lord, Yahweh, said to Joshua, Do not fear them, 
For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. God comes to Joshua, and as Joshua is fulfilling his promise to the covenant that he made with Gibeon, God says, I'm with you. God says, I'm going to give you victory because God honors the promise that he not only made to Israel, but now the promise that he made to Gibeon through Israel. God is a God who defends his promises. He has promised to defend Israel and therefore has decided and promised to defend Gibeon. And that's what God does. He says, Joshua, you've got this. I am going to give you victory because God promised to, promises to give Israel victory and God's promises always come true. So God does this. And, the, and Joshua and the armies of Israel, by the way, were told, march all night long to get to the battle. They march all night long to get to the battle. No question, they would be uh, tired, they would be worn out in no fighting condition. You've also got to understand that this is five separate nations that are coming against them. They would have been outnumbered. It would have seemed like an impossible task. And yet Joshua, in, in his promise, goes forward with the strength of God on his side. So the second point we see is not only does God defend his promises by telling Joshua, I'm going to give you victory, I'm going to give you this promise, and you are fulfilling your promise to Gibeon, and so am I. Then we see that God defends his people. God defends his people. As I just said, the Israelite army is going to be worn out. They have been working, walking all night to get to Gibeon to defend them. And now they come against five armies that are no doubt larger, five armies that seem impossible to have victory over. But yet in faith they come and they fight. In verses 10 through 15, we see God does some amazing things. In verses 10 through 15, we see that first of all, as Joshua and his army comes upon them, uh, the, the foreign, uh, the, well, the other armies, the enemy armies, are thrown into confusion. God confused the enemy. We're told that here uh, in chapter 10, that God confused the enemy. As, and it says right here, uh, right off the bat in verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. So Israel shows up, and then all of a sudden there is a panic. There is chaos. And what exactly did this look like? I don't know, but you've got to think about the fact that if five armies are coming together that have never worked before, that it seems pretty obvious what might be happening here. People would be turning against others. There is complete confusion. Israel comes upon them, and all of a sudden the enemies are confused. We're told that God sends them into this panic. God sends them into this confusion. And then we see that Israel then, because of the mass confusion that happens with these enemy armies, they're able to chase them. That God is chasing them through Israel all the way through, all the way away from Gibeon. So we see that having God confused the enemy. After God confuses the enemy, it doesn't stop there. God continues to show his faithfulness. God continues to show that he's going to defend his people and his promises by, he, by literally fighting for Israel. God fought for Israel. He did it in a very literal way. We're told here in this chapter uh, that as they were running, as they fled before Israel, uh, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, and they died. And then it says, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. This is important. As we're told what happens here, as, as the confusion happens, Israel comes upon the five armies. The armies start to flee, and as they flee, hailstones start raining down on them and literally killing the enemy armies. 
This is obviously of no strength of Israel. Israel did not find a way to uh, conjure weather to be able to do this. This is all God's doing. God sends the hailstones, and what we're told is more enemy combatants died based on God's hailstones than from the swords of the people of Israel. Because once again, God is the one who is acting on behalf of Israel. He is defending his people. He is defending his promise. And he does that in a very literal way as he sends hailstones down to destroy the enemy. And then there's another miracle that happens as if this wasn't enough of a miracle to have these hailstones coming down. We're then told at verse 12 uh, that Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. Now, in our translation here, this is a little interesting because then it says, And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Something miraculous happens here. And what it says is the sun stood still. Or actually in Hebrew, I, as I studied this, these, verse, these words really literally just mean slow down. That the sun would slow down to give them time, to give them uh, the light to be able to continue to destroy the enemy and the enemy not to be able to run and hide in the darkness. And we're told that Joshua called to the Lord and then we're told there's this quote. Now, there is a lot of debate here. Did Joshua say these words or is this God's response? And I think just looking at it logically, even though our translations might not really reflect this, when it says, and he said in the sight of Israel, I believe this is actually the voice of God. Because as we look at this, Joshua has no power to talk to the sun. He has no power to talk to the moon. Uh, Joshua is not in control of the sun. He's not control in control of the moon. I believe that Joshua asked God to give him more time in this battle. And then his God's answer and God's response comes in verses 12 and 13. Where it says, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped. And the nation took vengeance on their enemies. It w- now there has been a lot of speculation on this passage. Many scientists will come and tell us that this is impossible. That we know that, first of all, the sun doesn't move and neither does the moon. That it's the earth as it rotates that creates our, uh, our perception that the sun and moon are moving. Now, this is not the first time in scripture or in any kind of literature in which the idea of the sun moving and the moon moving, it's not meant to be a scientific statement. This is meant to see, this is what our perspective is, that the sun would move and the moon would move. And it would, and here we see that it would either be stopped or slowed. And many scientists will say, if we do that, means we're stopping the rotation of the earth, which means gravity would be suspended, which means there'd be chaos all over the planet and there's no way this could happen. Uh, I would say this, God is a God of miracles, God is the great God of miracles, God can do what God wants to do because he's the creator and the sustainer of all the universe. Do I know exactly how all of this worked? No, I don't really know exactly how this worked, but I do know that what Joshua says is that there has not been a day like it before or since. That what happened here was so miraculous that it had never happened before and up to the writing of Joshua hadn't happened again and I don't believe it's happened again until now. This was something that was spectacular, that God gave the people of Israel time to be able to finish their conquest. But then there's this interesting thing that even comes after this. Because it says not, that nothing has happened like this 
But then it says, why did it happen? It says that the Lord heeded to the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Interesting thing here, we see as God defends his people, he confused the enemy. He fought for Israel, but he listened to Joshua. That God listened to Joshua. God answered Joshua's prayer. God is a God who answers prayer. And it's interesting here, up to this point, and many commentators have made this point of this, up to this point in all the battles, God has been calling all the shots in the sense that God just decides what he's going to do and he's going to do. Whether Joshua prays for it or not, God does it. But here there's a little bit of a difference where Joshua specifically prays for help and God delivers the help that he asked for. God is a God who listens and God is a God who answers prayer. And here he does it in a miraculous way. We need to be people of prayer just as Joshua was. And God can do miraculous things in our lives if we'll simply call out to him and ask and believe. And Joshua did, and therefore we see this amazing miracle happen here. But we are, the miracle is not to be seen as all, all the, an end in itself. But the point is, is that God did this on behalf of his people. That God defends his people. And finally, not only does God defend his promises and his people, but God defends his glory. God ultimately, above all else, will defend his glory. And that's what we see in the rest of this passage that we read today in verses 16 through 28. First of all, we see we're told specifically, in quotes, Israel wiped out the enemy armies. They were wiped out. Complete victory. People were killed. People were destroyed. Cities were destroyed. God used Israel again. We've seen this in Jericho. We've seen this in Ai. And we've seen this in any place that God gives victory of the Israelites. That the Israelites become God's weapon of judgment. His tool of judgment upon the people of Canaan who have turned their backs on God, who are living sinful, despicable lives, and therefore God's judgment must come down on sin, and God uses Israel to do this. So Israel wipes out the enemy armies. This is not a small feat. This was five armies that united together, that would have outnumbered Israel, and that would have had the, 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 the high ground, they would have had the timing, they were not caught by surprise, yet God fought on their behalf. And Israel ended up being, or ended up wiping out the enemy. And so we see that happen. We see that Israel pursues the enemy and strikes them all down. A few get away to go to fortified cities. They'll be dealt with later. But God tells Israel to go forward and to destroy the enemy. And that's what happens. And then we have this, this narrative here in the last part of chapter 10 that we read this morning about the five kings that end up uh, in a cave, they get detained and they end up being imprisoned in a cave for a while while Israel uh, takes up and chases and finishes off the conquest. And then we see uh, this interesting thing that we don't quite understand, but as we read what happens as they're in the cave and then Joshua brings them out of the cave, the five kings that came against Israel, or Gibeon, and then by association Israel, uh, and they brought the kings out, we're told in verse 23. In verse 24, uh, Israel or Joshua goes and tells the chief men who have come with him, uh, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. This is a weird sight, all right? We don't do this much. Uh, uh, you don't see people uh, stepping on people's necks. Uh, that would be a, a weird sight to see in our society. 
So what did this mean in the time of uh, ancient Israel? Well, it, this was something that was very common, actually. After a battle would be completed, uh, the kings, uh, the really the representatives then of the whole city, of the whole nation, uh, would have this happen where the, the feet of the victors would actually be put on their neck or on their head. And this was a symbol of the complete supremacy that the victor had over the, 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 the losers, over the, those who had lost the battle. Complete supremacy, uh, complete uh, authority was seen in the fact that Israel had complete victory and that was symbolized even as the chiefs would put their foot on the necks of those who had been defeated. Uh, we see this throughout scripture, actually. If you, uh, we're going to read this later in Psalm 8. It talks about it. Uh, but I, I also want to go to the book of Hebrews. Uh, and this is the ultimate fulfillment of what this looks like. But the book of Hebrews, uh, I know it's not on your, uh, on your outline, but if you go to the book of Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 1. Uh, I just want to read a few passages from Hebrews. And God's going to apply this idea of putting uh, a foot on uh, in this in this understanding. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 13, and this is talking about Jesus. This is actually in context. Uh, they've been talking about, the writer of Hebrews has been talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels, how Jesus is superior overall. And how is his superiority seen? Well, in verse 13, it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? This is that idea of a foot being put on the head or put on the neck of the enemy. And we're told that Jesus, has, a, in a spiritual sense, has that same foot on the neck of his enemies. Further on in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. For it has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, uh, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In the fact that Jesus died, we're told in Hebrews, makes it so that he's put all things under subjection. All th- he is superior over all things. And what is the symbol that is used to show Christ's superior- or superiority over all this world? Well, first of all, he, he says the enemies have been made a footstool. And then it says everything has been put in, in subjection under his feet. This symbol, that's when it's used throughout scripture. You'll see it in other places. First Corinthians, I believe, talks about it. And you'll see it in the Psalms. You'll see it in several places. But when we're told that something is put under subjection under somebody's feet, or somebody's been put under as a footstool, it's a, it's a symbol of supremacy and of, of complete uh, superiority. And that the person would be the subject that would be the one that would be being stepped on. So here back in Joshua, this is the idea. Uh, Objection uh, of the kings that lost, the superiority of Israel, and by extension, God Himself. And then Joshua says very clearly, as they have their feet on their necks, says this in verse 25: Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. 
Even in this symbol, Joshua makes it very clear that the one who is superior, the one who is putting everything under subjection, the one who has given the five kings uh, into subjection and has given the defeat to them, was not Israel itself, but was God himself. And Joshua makes it very clear that God is the one that deserves the glory. So as God defends his glory by wiping out his enemies, he also shows his glory even through this symbol of supremacy over the five kings. Joshua acknowledged God's supremacy over the five kings because God is the king of all and the king over all kings. Finally, then we see this end with, again, we've seen this before, but Joshua takes the kings uh, and he executes them for their crimes, for their sins, and then hangs them on trees, five trees for five kings, and then ends up doing the same thing to the king of Mecca, which is the, would be a sixth king. He does the same thing. And this is a symbol, again, of God's judgment. It is a symbol of God's judgment and his curse. Enemy kings were cursed by God for their disobedience. Anyone who was hanged on a tree, we're told in Galatians, is to be cursed. Which we talked about a few weeks ago is just a, even a foreshadowing of when Jesus dies on the cross. That he is, he, is, uh, he is receiving the curse and the judgment of God for sin in that moment as he's on the cross. And he, he experienced that for us, for you and for me, so that we don't have to experience that judgment that the people of Canaan are now experiencing. But the enemy kings are hung from trees, and it's a symbol to say, God's judgment has come. God has cursed disobedience. Again, to show God's glory. That God has great mercy for his people. But God also has great vengeance and great justice to those who resist him. And so we've understood these things now today through these verses, through verse 28 of chapter 10. We see that God is the one who is giving victory. He is a faithful defender. He has defended his promises that he's made to Israel. He has defended his people who are Israel. And he has defended his own glory through showing that he will judge sin. This is who God is. This, is an, this should give us amazing hope and confidence in him. That God is one who defends. He is a faithful defender. He will not walk away from us. The commitment that he's made, he will hold true to. That is who God is, and that should give us great encouragement this morning. So when that is, our, is our, in, our, in our hindsight, that behind us, to look at Joshua, to look at what God did for Israel, that God was working on their behalf, what does that mean for us today? How do we take this narrative? How do we take this story, what has happened in the past, and how do we use it in our lives today? Well, a few questions that I think we can ask as we think about these things that God showed us. First of all, we see that God is a God of promises. God is a God of promises. And so the first question that I need to ask and that we all should be asking is this very simple question. But if you come to believe in God's promise of eternal life that can only come through Jesus Christ... You see, in the Bible we're told that God is still a God that fulfills his promises. God is still a God who will, who, will, who will do what he says he's going to do. That he will do what he's promised to do. And we can trust that. And what has he said that he promised to do? I want to turn real quickly to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John tells us in, in no questionable language what his promise is. 1 John 2.25 1 John 2.25 says this, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal 
life. God has promised eternal life, that even though we will physically die on this earth, that we can live forever with Christ, with God. We can have a relationship with God that will last forever. That is the eternal life that is promised. Over in chapter 5 of 1 John, we're told that the witness of this promise is Jesus. And we're going to look at, real quickly, verses 11 and 12 in chapter 5 of 1 John. And many of you have probably heard this, but it says this, and this is the testimony or the witness of the promise. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. There's that promise. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. God has promised eternal life to those who have Jesus, who have given their life, who have committed themselves to Jesus, the Son of God, who was sent to the world to live a perfect life so that he one day could die on that cross, to die on the tree, to take the curse and punishment of sin for us. And Jesus did that. He died for us. He rose again three days later, as we're told in Scripture, that Jesus not only died so that we didn't have to pay the penalty for our sin if we will come to him in faith, but he rose again to show that his sacrifice indeed was the sacrifice that could cover our sin and that he was powerful over sin and death. And what we're told in Scripture is very clear. To experience the promise of eternal life that is given in his word, we need to have Jesus We need to come to him in faith, believe that he is who he says he is and that he's done what we know he's done and that he will do what he says he will do. That we come to Jesus and we believe in him as the ultimate promise keeper and that we will find eternal life in him and in him alone by coming to him in faith and committing, back to that word, committing ourselves, making a covenant, if you will, with Jesus himself by believing and repenting And looking to Jesus and no longer looking at our old way of life. So the question is, have you come to believe in this promise? Have you accepted this promise by coming to know Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, as always, we would always say, please talk to somebody who knows Christ. They would love to share with you how you can have a relationship that will last forever with him. For all of us here, it's something to think about as well. Even in the hardships and trials of this life, these battles that Israel keeps Fighting. These are not fun battles. They are working hard and they are seeming like they're outnumbered at every time they come around. And yet, God is giving them victory. But even when we face hardships, as Israel did, and we face trials, do we rely on God as our defender? Do we really rely on God as our defender? Or do we try to do things in our own strength? And I know we've talked about this before, but this is becoming very clear through Joshua that we cannot rely on ourselves, that we cannot somehow try to uh, just power our way through life on our own strength. That will always fail, but God is a God who will not fail because he keeps his promises and he will fight for us if we're faithful to him. That is what the, the word says. That's what Joshua says. That's what all of, the word, all of the Bible would tell us is that God is faithful to us. When we come to him and we are truly his, he will be faithful and he will defend us. John 16, 33, many of you may know this verse, but in John 16, 23, uh, we, see, um, uh, we see Jesus, I'm sorry, 16, 33. John 16, 33. We see Jesus tells us what to expect in this world, but then he gives us great hope. John 16, 33. John 16, 33 says this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But then he says this, in the world you will have tribulation. 
Hard times, trials, tribulation, times will come that are hard to deal with. But then he says this, but take heart, be encouraged. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus told us that even when hard times come, which they will, when our hardships are here, when our trials are wearing us down, when it seems like there's no hope, Jesus has overcome the world. Indeed, in Romans chapter 8, we're told the same thing, and we've read these so many times, but we can't forget these verses. In verse 35 of chapter 8 in the book of Romans, it says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No matter what comes our way, God is our defender. So relying on ourselves when we come into the hardships of life, relying on our own strength or trying to figure out a way out of it for ourselves is never going to pay off. We have a promise that says Jesus is on our side, that Jesus, no matter what happens to us, has, is, loves us and nothing can separate us from that love, that we are conquerors in everything through Jesus who loved us. So as we think about Israel, we think about Joshua, they faced these battles, but remember, they didn't rely on themselves, they relied on God. So when we face the battles of life, do we rely on God? Do we look to him? Do we call out to Jesus and ask him for help? Or do we try to do things in our own? And I would say we need to rely on Christ. We need to rely on God to be our defender. A quick rabbit trail is this is Mother's Day. Um, This... This is something I just want to say to moms real quick. Like, uh, don't tune out if you're not a mom. You can, it's good for you too. But uh, moms, I know, uh, and I'm not a mom, obviously, uh, but uh, I have a wife who's a mom, and I have a mom, and I've watched mothers uh, throughout my life. And here's what I want to say. I know a lot of you, and it depends on the time of life that you're in, and I understand that. As a mother, sometimes can plain get stressed out. As a mother, you can get worn out. You can get weary. You can start wondering where the strength is going to come from to do what you're expected to do. Maybe it's the, maybe the expectations that your kids have on you or, or grandkids for some of you or, or maybe even the expectation that your husband might have on you or whatever it might be. I understand that in this life, stress is a real thing. And sometimes motherhood honestly is a battle. And I've watched that and I've seen that. And as it is, I just want to encourage you as mothers you as a mother we celebrate you today but don't think that any in any way or shape or form that somehow that you can handle everything on your own that you are the world says you're a mother you can do anything and that i think that's that's good encouragement but you can't do anything god can do anything so if you want to have if you want to have strength and power in the times of frustration and the times of stress and the times of hardship, don't try to do it all in your own strength, but run to God. Run to Christ. Ask him to help you be the better mother, uh, the, the, the better wife, or not, even just to get through a time. And, and I'm, don't rely on yourselves, but rely on Jesus. And that's not just for mothers, obviously. That's for all of us. When times get tough, we need to lean on him, not on ourselves. And finally, the last question as we think about what we saw in Joshua is that are you submitted to the supremacy of God over all else? Beautiful passage in the book of Ephesians that I'd like to read this morning. Book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, 
verses 20 through 23. This is a promise that we can cling to, and it should be reflected in how we live. Ephesians 1, verse 20. And he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Ephesians, Paul reminds us that Christ is the one who is superior and who is preeminent and the one who is, has supremacy over all things. Do we really believe that God is supreme? We sang about it this morning. We sang his greatness. We sang his supremacy. We sang of his kingship. My prayer and my hope is, do we really mean that? And I'll say this, Joshua and Israel understood what it meant for God to be their king. For God to lead them. They trusted him completely. Do you trust God completely? Do you truly believe that he is over all things? And does your life look like that? Is the way you're living, is the way I'm living? We all need to ask this question. In light of the fact that Jesus is over all things. Those are some questions to think about as we look at this story, if you will, of Joshua fighting against the five kings. And God gives great victory. And we have hope in the fact that Joshua and Israel had great victory, but they had victory not in their own strength, but in God's. Are you willing to rely on his strength today as well? That's what we can lean on. Whether a mother today or anyone else, we can lean on God's strength all the time. Let us pray.